I want you to take your Bibles then and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. As we talk about witnessing, as we talk about sharing, we talk about the good news. This passage, as as much as any other passage you'll find in the scripture, it is so applicable to today and where we are. I mean, I'm amazed how God can take his word and he can make it relevant to us even in the 21st century, aren't you? I mean, we can take a passage like Jacob there at Bethel, as we did this morning, and see how it can still apply to us today. Now we come to Acts chapter 17, and we see Paul delivering a message there in Athens, a message that would resonate just as well today in our American culture as it did there in the Athenian culture. It is amazing to see how the Scripture can apply to us. I want you to look tonight, if you will, at this. I think it's a seminal passage. I think it is a passage that uh, really speaks to the heart of the gospel and gives us insight in being able to engage a culture that has, that has embraced idolatry, a culture that is, if you will, pre-Christian, kind of like our culture today that is post-Christian you see so many similarities. And I think it informs us and instructs us in the way we might share as well. In Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16, it says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. Then when he saw that the city was given over to idols, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Now, here Paul continues this second missionary journey, and he'd been in Thessalonica, he'd been in Berea, and because of opposition that had come there, he had found himself in Athens. Athens, which is basically an intellectual center even in this time. Now, Athens didn't have the political and commercial uh, significance that it had earlier, many hundreds of years earlier. Uh, Corinth that we'll see later really has taken that primary role as a city of commerce and and economy. But Athens is still noted for its uh, intellectual and cultural center. There's a very few people there in Athens compared to years before. Again, the city itself has kind of contracted. And yet Paul finds himself there in this intellectual center And he begins to share the gospel. But beginning, it says in verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him. His spirit was provoked within him. This is a strong word if you look at it in the original language. It means that Paul was infuriated when he looked around and he saw all of the idols that filled the city. And according to some, there were idols that you could see everywhere. Idols of Hermes, for example, that you could see lining different streets. There were idols that you could see as far as you could imagine. And here Paul sees all of these things and he is infuriated by it. His spirit is stirred. He is angry. He recognizes the blindness and the darkness that is consuming Athens. Has your spirit been stirred recently? I just want to ask that question. Has your spirit been stirred recently? I mean, has there been a moment when your heart has, you want to say, been infuriated? Well, 
Some of us who watch the news from time to time, we see different issues and we find ourselves infuriated over those stories. We can find our spirit stirred. It's amazing what can stir us, can it? I mean, it really is. To see some of the things that can, and I'm right there with you, my friends. I'm right there with you. I see some of the things, some of the stories that are covered by certain media outlets, and I can feel this rage almost building up inside of me. Well, our spirit may have been stirred. Our heart may have been infuriated by some things. But let me ask you this. When was the last time your spirit was infuriated by idolatry? When was the last time your spirit was stirred by seeing a culture and a community that had embraced everything and anything except God? You see, we get mad about so many things. And I told you, I admitted that I'm right there with you. In this cultural warrior kind of posture I take, I get mad about so many things that I see occurring. And there are some issues that's worth getting mad about. But then there are other things, other issues and topics that come up that we get so passionate about. You know, uh, a, a few years ago, I adopted the word passion for the church that I was pastoring because I wanted for that whole year to emphasize passion. I felt like that's what we needed in our Christian walk, passion. To which somebody reminded me, maybe it wasn't passion that we were missing because we could see people who are very passionate go to an LSU ball game. You could find some of my church members who are very passionate in that setting. It wasn't necessarily a lack of passion. It was a lack of focus for that passion. And I took what that individual said and it spoke to me because I think we as Christians sometimes, I think we can be passionate and that passion can demonstrate itself in a righteous type of anger. But unfortunately, many times that passion and that anger is directed at the wrong thing. I'll tell you what we ought to be really passionate about. And I'll tell you what we ought to be stirred about. And I'll tell you what we ought to be angry about. It is the idolatry that is consuming our culture. There's so many other things, yes, that we can argue and talk about. But I think we ought, to be, we ought to be stirred at the sight of idolatry. Not only, not only in our culture, but may we say this, that we would be stirred at the sight of idolatry in our communities and in our churches and in our families and may I say it, in our own lives. We ought to see how idolatry is trying to consume us. Now, I understand that when... When I drive down 167 and I go into Ruston, I don't necessarily see these um, material idols. I don't see at least the bust of certain gods of the Greeks or goddesses of the Romans. I don't see that. I recognize that. But friends, don't miss the reality that many in our country, and if we're not careful, we ourselves are given to idolatry each and every day. And we should be stirred by that. Paul comes in and he's stirred by the sight that he sees there in Athens. But his strategy is very simple. His strategy was simple. Notice what it says in verse 17, just as he would in many other cities and other opportunities. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. 
and with the Gentile worshipers. In other words, he would go into the synagogue. He knew he had that connection. We've seen that all through the book of Acts. And he would build that bridge. But notice this. It says that not only was he there in the synagogue, but he was in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. In other words, during the week, he was out in the marketplace, in this gathering area. He was out there and he would... He would try to communicate with those that he came in contact with. Perhaps he was building relationships with them, the same people, perhaps coming through daily, that he could have these gospel-centered conversations. I mean, it's a very simple strategy, isn't it? Go to the synagogue on Sunday where you're welcome. Reason with those who have a background in Judaism has, and certainly he was speaking to them as he had before about how Jesus was the Messiah, how he was the Christ. And then he went out into the crowds. He went out into the marketplace and he shared the faith of Christ. That's what he did, building relationships. It reminds me, John, of, in a sense, what is going on with our sin teams. I mean, what are our college sin teams doing? They're sin, they are seeking to be uh, intentional they're seeking to be evangelistic in their relationships and in their lives. In other words, they meet with church planners and they see what's going on. But many times they're, they're out in the streets and they're out in different areas and they're trying to build relationships for the kingdom of God. It's a very simple strategy. And it's a very simple strategy for our lives. That whoever we come in contact with and wherever we are, God gives us an opportunity to be able to speak the gospel of Christ. And that's what he does there in Athens. Well, his speech, though, was sensitive. I, I want you to see this. It says in verse 18, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of you which... You speak. In other words, as he's preaching and he's teaching, he's coming into all these different philosophies, these different understandings. The Epicureans, the Epicureans who believe in no afterlife, they believe basically that you should enjoy the day to an extent that you should enjoy pleasure in your life. Uh, they were very um, materialistic. Uh, they believed that, again, there was no hope after this life was over. So, Many people have quoted them before or quoted some of their philosophers before and this idea of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. So here they are trying to process this idea of an afterlife and a God, and they're trying to understand. The Stoics, Stoics who basically base their existence on reason and rationale, who would preach and teach, if you would call it that, uh, that there was a define uh, a, a defining principle, a divine principle behind everything. This blueprint, you might call it the logos. That's exactly right. A Greek terminology, which, of course, John reminds us that it's God who is behind everything. And he is the blueprint that is holding things together. That is Jesus Christ himself. But the Stoics, they're trying to get it. They believe in an afterlife, but they don't believe in a physical resurrection. They believe that there's only this spiritual existence. So they're trying to get all these things in their minds and in their hearts. <clears throat> they, listen, they listen to 
Paul, and they can't quite understand. They said he's, he's a babbler. Literally, uh, you could say that they were calling him a seed picker. Now think of that, a seed picker. The image is of a bird who might go into a barn, barnyard and just pick seeds indiscriminately, just pick them around. That he was going out and he was picking different things and he was bringing it together in some way to come up with some system. But it was a system that did not make sense to them. It was a system <clears throat> that they believed that he himself could not understand. They thought he was just this babbler, this seed picker. Brother John, would you go get me some water, please? They also believed that he was preaching two different gods. Get this. They was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. I don't know if you can see that clearly in this scripture, but that's basically what they were thinking, is that he was preaching two different gods. Jesus, the masculine, resurrection, which in the Greek uh, language is feminine. So in other words, they thought he was preaching like the God of Jesus and the God of Anastasia, the God of the resurrection, a feminine God somehow. It was amazing that they had such misunderstanding. But there are so many people today that are the same way, right? They have all kinds of systems, and they hear us preaching, and they hear us teaching, and it still seems to be so foreign to them. Notice, beginning in verse 19, though, it says that they take him and bring him to the Areopagus, this council. I don't think it was a formal trial that he's going through, but rather this moment where they could hear and they could listen. They wanted to know the new doctrine. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. And then look, if you will, at verse 21. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. <laughs> Listen to how Dr. Luke says that. He says all the Athenians, all they want to do is just run around and talk about things and hear new things. It had been written many years before that while Philip of Macedon was coming to Athens and he was about to take things over, that the Athenians, instead of worried about Philip, they were going house to house to find out new things. That was how they were wanting to constantly learn and know new things. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with learning and knowing new things. But instead of, instead of always learning, there's a place where we come to recognize the truth of who God is. And allowing that truth to teach us constantly. Well, verse 22, Paul gets his opportunity and his speech, as I said, was very sensitive. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Notice how he starts out. Now see, for you and me, when our spirit is stirred, our heart is infuriated, we usually don't begin so graciously, do we? When we hear um, our faith questioned, when we have our faith, um, well, we have our faith uh, in, in some way challenged, most of us do not begin in such a gracious way. Now, I will tell you that Paul began in an ambiguous way. 
it could be taken two different ways. When he says that you're very religious, well, it could be taken in a positive manner, which I think most of them probably did. Although the word can also mean something like you're very superstitious. And maybe that's what Paul had in his mind, but they had taken it in a positive way. He, he addresses this issue very sensitively. And he says, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Notice how Paul builds a bridge. He says, you know, out there, you've got this um, inscription that says to the unknown God. It, it's as though the Athenians, they don't want to miss anybody. They'll have all the named gods of the Greeks and and those who have probably have been recognized by the Romans and they would put anybody else in there. And they said, just so we don't miss anybody, we'll have that one to the unknown God or gods. We'll just place that there as well. And what Paul says is that, you know, you're always looking for things and you want to know stuff and you want something new. You know that unknown God that you've been searching for? He said, I want to, I want to proclaim him to you right now. I can identify. He says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Get this the way he begins. He begins, hopefully, in a manner that will appeal to them. He says that this God that we have is the creator God, and he's above everything. He's above everything. And this God that we have is a God who is able to sustain all things. He gives. He takes care. He doesn't need us necessarily. He doesn't need our uh, hands in order to provide for him. Verse 26. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell in all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-apportioned times and the boundaries of their dwellings. In other words, this God has been in control in every nation Every boundary, every time, this God has taken care of that. He is the sovereign God. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. I think this is a wonderful way in which Paul engages these intellectuals, if you will, at Areopagus. I mean, he says to them, he says, this God is a creator God. He doesn't need anything. This is God who has been in control of all history, all nations, all peoples. God is taking care and God has worked in his own way. Even your poets, don't you love that part of it? Even your poets said that we are his offspring. Paul builds a bridge. And again, he's doing it in a sensitive manner. He's not just blowing his top as perhaps I would or perhaps you would. He's reason. He's thinking. Some people, some people have dismissed this sermon of Paul. They've said, oh, it doesn't line up with what Paul says to the Corinthians. Paul said to the Corinthians that he wasn't using any type of necessary intellect or any type of eloquence. That's what he said back then, there in Corinth. So he changed his mind. He didn't preach like this. I've heard people say that. Ah, I just simply don't agree with you on that. Paul always 
trusted in the, in the power and the work of God. He always did that when he preached and when he taught. But that didn't mean that he didn't try to build some kind of bridge with the people he was talking with. It didn't mean that he didn't try to point to their own experiences and somehow build the truth out of that, showing them here that even their own poets had said that he, this God, was the one who had birthed them and the one who had taken care of them. He had used that as this point to come together and to teach and to preach them to them. Verse 29, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. See, his speech was sensitive, but his solution was salvation. In other words, he tried to build a bridge with them, but he did not back away from the truth. He said, you can go around and try to use the excuse that you didn't know all of this. He said, you know, God has declared himself through nature, if you will, through all kinds of ways. But you can go along and you can say, well, I didn't know exactly who he was. Paul says, now there's no excuse. You know exactly who this God is. And he has commanded you to repent. He's commanded all men to change their minds about him because he has appointed a day on which he would judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance to this, of this to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, he gives them the truth. He says that God has validated Jesus Christ through the resurrection itself and that through him, you can see salvation as you come to that place of repentance. Well, when he mentioned the resurrection, as you can imagine, it's in a debate among this council, this Areopagus. It says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, well, we'll hear you again on this matter. You see... Basically here is he's speaking to these philosophers, many of them who did not believe in a life after death, many who did not believe in any type of physical life after death at least. When he mentioned this word resurrection and he tried to speak this gospel of Christ and he showed how he was validated through the resurrection itself, they could not simply grasp, they could not simply buy in. Some say, oh, we'll listen to you again later. You gotten that before? When you're trying to share the gospel? Well, we'll hear you again later. Well, you pray that that is sincere. And you hope it is. Because you want them to. There are those who are going to mock. There are those who are going to discredit. It's going to happen. The world will hate you. Jesus has told us that. But notice... In verse 33, it says, So Paul departed from among them, in verse 34, However, some men joined him and believed. They're in Athens. Those among the intellectuals. Those among the philosophers. Some of them believed. Now, we've moved through this story for some Sunday nights now. And haven't we seen how God will just work and save different kinds of people, 
so many different ways. He's not really a respecter of persons, not in that way. I mean, he's willing to save the, well, he's willing to save the jailer. He's willing to save the little girl that has been possessed by a demon. He's willing to save, well, he's willing to save that lady of some esteem there in Philippi. And now, guess what? He's able to bring in those individuals that pride themselves on philosophy and intellectualism. He's able to he's able to penetrate their hearts and their lives through the gospel so that they might come and be saved. We're told that among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. In other words, God was saving again men and women. He was saving all kinds of people in different ways. Not everybody. But there were some who were saved. I say again to you. When you look at this. It is a beautiful outline of how to engage a culture. Allowing our spirit to be stirred. And going out with a simple strategy. Being sensitive in our speech. and our message. And Yes. In the end, declaring that salvation through Jesus Christ is the only solution that individuals can see. I think we can do that. I think it's more, more than appropriate for us to do in that way with our culture today. I think our message will be offensive to some. But I think as we declare it, we can do it in a sensitive, in a truthful and appropriate way. And in some way, see individuals come to know the Christ we serve. I pray that would be our intent. And I pray we'd keep going. Even when those mock us and even when those say it later on, we'd keep going. Why? Because there's going to be a Dionysius out there somewhere and a a Damaris somewhere. And there are going to be some individuals who will come to salvation. And I pray that would be our heart and our life. Let's pray together tonight. Father. We bless your name. We thank you. We praise you. Lord, we give thanks to you for allowing us to be a part of your mission and your gospel. Be with us now through this moment of reflection. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?